Hello, Duke fans. Welcome to episode 451 of the DBR podcast, the Duke Basketball Report. I am Jason Evans here for your listening enjoyment. I am joined, as I always am, by Sam Klein and Donald Wine. Before they chime in, just so all of you know, we'll be talking extensively about Countdown to Craziness on this episode, plus another one. Duke basketball gets another elite recruit, and the football team shocks the world. Uh, I, I mean, a stunning, stunning victory over the Miami Hurricanes. It is a lot to talk about. It is going to be a great episode. Sam Klein is here with me. Sam, boy, it was a it's been a fun what forty eight hours or so for Duke for Duke lovers. Sorry, Jason. Hang on one second. Uh, I think I misplaced my microphone. Uh, it's probably in the hands of a Duke linebacker. <laughs> nicely done sir well done donald wine is also with us donald uh what, what's your quippy amusing commentary related to either countdown or football well it's not amusing or quippy but i will say this i told y'all it was going to happen and i don't think it was as big a shock as everyone says it is uh because miami fans right now are in a world of of, of stuff if, if you will. <laughs> All right. We're going to get to that uh, in just a little bit. But but like I said, uh, we are titled the Duke Basketball Report. And the place we go first is for the Hoops News. And we had our first real extensive look at the team just on Friday evening with Countdown to Craziness. Now, there are obviously two aspects to Countdown. There is the scrimmage that was played, and then there is the fun stuff, the crazy stuff, the introductions of the players, the light show, the dancing, and all that other jazz. We're going to get to that in a minute. We're going to start with the scrimmage. Um, and, you know, it was not the most polished show. <laughs> I guess that's the kindest way I can put it. Uh, there, there's, there's a lot to talk about here. Um, I, you know, uh, Donald, I'll come to you first. Uh, tell me, tell me, you know, sort of what your biggest takeaway was from this. And maybe, you know what, let's start with this. The hot take, everyone's hot take coming out of this is Christian Reeves. Christian Reeves should not redshirt. Christian Reeves, you know, needs to be in the rotation. Uh, look like one of the better players on the floor. It- Donald, before you, before you get into that, Jason, I want to make sure that we have the context before we talk about Christian Reeves. Sure. That Derek Lively II was out for this game. We previewed this game, what, 36 hours before they played, and even we didn't know because it wasn't announced until game day that Derek Lively was out with an injury, not something that's going to keep him out, we think, for, like, months. It sounds like it may be weeks, but that he wasn't playing in this game, and he was obviously one of the players we were most excited to see under the lights. Yes, important context. And, and probably one of the major reasons that Christian Reeves played as much as he did. But Donald, again, I'm going to come to you. Tell me, you know, are you buying into the Christian Reeves hype? I mean, I'm, I, that's a that's a loaded question because if I say no, that people are going to be like, "Oh man, you're out, you're way against Christian Reeves." I don't think Christian Reeves his stock or status changed anything from Countdown on Friday night, right? Like. They, you can't take this and say, oh, Christian Reeves is now going to get 15, 20, 30 minutes a game, whatever that whatever it is that people like to do. And, and of course, we're, we're, we're those people, too. We like to, you know, take raw, uncut video in the summertime and extrapolate that to mean that this guy's going to go for 40 points game or, you know, this guy's the next big thing. 
I don't think Christian Reeves is the next big thing, but I think he had a great game, and it was is awesome to see guys who we didn't expect to do well do well, right? Like this is one of the few times we think this year that we'll be able to see Christian Reeves play basketball in Cameron, and he did well for himself. So if that's the case, then that's great. I, I will say this: when we previewed Countdown late last week, we warn people not to take too much from this scrimmage, right? Like this is going to be, yes, the first look at the team for almost everyone, say for us um, and a few others, but it was not going to be polished. We were not expecting, you know, guys again to go for, you know, 45 points in 15 minutes and the score being 60 to 43. Like we just weren't going to expect a polished game. So I'm not going to take, you know, a lot by saying, hey, yes, it looks sloppy, but that's okay because that's what this is supposed to be. This is just a a scrimmage to, again, welcome the fans to Cameron and also to welcome the fans to this particular 2022-23 men's basketball team. So I really don't, uh, I'm really not taking too much from the sloppiness of this affair, but I will say that I thought Christian Reeves looked good. And if this is one of the few instances we get to see him this year in Cameron, then what a way to do that, right? Before, a, you know, a sold out crowd to do that, a countdown. I, I feel really happy that he was able to put in a performance that he did, given the few opportunities he's expected to have. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to be mean to Christian Reeves, but I'm not buying into all this talk that suddenly he, he needs to be in the rotation. I, I frankly saw a guy who has a lot of length, who can clearly run the floor, and and I mean, th- that's really important. But I didn't see someone who was getting the ball in the post and making making post moves. He, what he really did was he hit uh, layups off of, you know, nice feeds from his teammates. And I, I didn't see anything that he did that we wouldn't have expected a guy of his size to do around the basket. It, it was a matter of being in the right place at the right time, for the most part, to get most of his points. And there's a skill in that. That's not a bad thing to have in, in a big man. And there are certainly, look, there are plenty of big men who don't have the hands and the footwork to even be able to finish off a layup. <laughs> Christian Reeves showed he can definitely do that. But I, I'm really not ready yet to to sort of go on this. I, I've seen some people saying there's no way this guy red shirts. I, and Jason, I, keep in mind that we have not one, but two seven-footers that are not expected to get any playing time. We might have the the biggest reserve bench uh, in, in in college basketball right now. And I think when it comes to Christian Reeves, him as well as Stanley Borden, who saw like 16 seconds right. in this uh, scrimmage, um, they are both not necessarily called on to play. They are called on to prepare Derek Lively and Ryan Young for the battles that they will go through in the ACC and also Cal Filipowski and the other big men. But we have, we have some trees on the bench for a reason. And just because they do well or they don't do well in this particular scrimmage, again, the very first of several that they're going to have before the games actually start and do count. It's, it's, it's okay to kind of pump brakes and say, Hey, this was just what it was him showing out for the fans and that doesn't necessarily mean that John Shire is starting him on night one. Sam, where are you on this Christian Reeves debate? I mean, this has to be the first thing everyone's talking about coming out of the scrimmage because, uh, you know, he he scored 11 points. 
He grabbed five rebounds. He blocked a few shots. He made Jaden shoot just look terrible. <laughs> yeah, and and to the point, Jason, about the the chatter, we got a couple emails. One from listener Clinton, and and one from uh, the K Man about how how Reeves has to play, and that and that John Shire has no choice at this point. Uh, sort of talking about that that line that that you were sharing. Let me uh, take everyone back in time uh, to the 2006 blue white game, a game that uh, will live forever in the minds of a particular uh, obsessed, uh, lifeless, otherwise set of Duke fans. Uh, The 2006 blue white game featured an absolutely stunning performance by Brian Zubek. He played 30 minutes. He was 11 for 15 from the field. He made five of his eight free throws. He pulled down 10 rebounds in those 10 minutes. Brian Zubek was everywhere in the 2006 uh, blue-white game. The 2006-2007 season was not a season to remember for the Duke Blue Devils. I actually think we talked about it on the last episode because it was featured in a, in a trivia game, which unfortunately it, it does often. Brian Zubek managed to play in 32 games that season. He averaged 7.3 points and three or 7.3 minutes, excuse me, and 3.1 points per game, 2.2 rebounds per game. Pretty good, two rebounds in only seven minutes. All of this is a lesson in the blue-white game, especially for freshman big men. Really doesn't mean much. Uh, this is this is small sample nonsense that we shouldn't pay attention to. I think the most telling thing, actually, is not Reeves's performance, but the fact that John Shire in the post-game interview didn't come out immediately and say, Yes, the plan is still to redshirt him. He said something to the effect of, we're going to talk to Christian's family. I actually think that the decision on whether or not to redshirt Christian Reeves is more a function of when does Derek Lively come back than it is anything to do with Reeves' development. Uh, Duke does not expect, you know, Reeves coming into this season, Duke did not expect him, even if he was, you know, eligible, if, if Duke was choosing not to redshirt him, he's behind Lively, Filipowski, not to mention Ryan Young uh, and and Mark Mitchell to some extent, depending on how you think of him as a big man in that big man rotation. And look, Filipowski didn't look amazing yesterday. He did make a, a three or on Friday night. He did make a three. He actually looked like he had the most mature body of all the freshmen. I, I, I saw, I think one of our emailers mentioned that he looked pretty thin. I actually thought that Filipowski, given that he's, you know, recently arrived on campus and as tall as he is, looked pretty thick. And and it'll take a bit of time, I think, for him to feel comfortable playing against other guys of that size. I know that his his twin brother is sort of similarly sized, but to go up against guys who've been in the ACC 21, 22 years old and and banging against them in games, that might take time for Filipowski. But relatively speaking, I actually feel very positive about where he is right now. Sure, he didn't make all of his shots and sure, some of his rebounds are a little gangly, but I saw... Uh, good court vision from him. I saw a, a, a good amount of body control given his youth and his size. So I actually am feeling pretty good about where Filipowski is. Elsewhere on the roster, I saw a lot of athleticism. Uh, Mark Mitchell, uh, Tyrese Proctor was, you know, was sort of all over the place yesterday. I think he's probably the other star that we should be talking about. Yeah. So, so Sam, here's what I, here's, I think the best way to do this is rather than us go through all the players at once, let's sort of break them down by category. And you, you are hitting the big men first, but before we move on to some of the other guys, let me just say this about the big men. First of all, regarding Reeves and the red shirt, 
There's no reason for John Shire to state anything definitively in the wake of that scrimmage. I think, you know, the answer of we're going to talk to his family. We're going to see what, you know, what progresses and what happens. Congrats to Christian on, on playing great in this, in this scrimmage and keep working hard. Um, It'd be crazy for Reeves to have any answer other, I'm sorry, for, for Shire to have any answer other than that about Christian Reeves. He just doesn't need to, they don't need to make that decision. Well, I was thinking Jason that Shire might've said, no, this is still the plan. We're glad he had a good time, but or we're but, glad that he had a good but again, there's that was it. So it's it it leaves a little bit more of an opportunity, but that doesn't mean that the plan has changed. Nor does, as you said, nor does Shire even have to admit it yet. And yeah. the plan could be the plan until the plan changes, right? Like case in point, Joey Baker was supposed to redshirt until he didn't. Like exactly this is, this is an it is going to be a question throughout the whole season. It is not something that can be settled on night one. Uh, of practice essentially yeah but so i so i want to get to the other big men really quick because sam talked a little bit about filipowski i think we should also talk about ryan young um i i sam i agree with you i thought i thought kyle filipowski looked fairly good i liked his ball handling um i thought he looked good shooting those three pointers though you know he made one he missed a couple but he but you know his release is fairly quick on those he's obviously he's a seven footer so they're coming from a really high angle they're very difficult for for the opposing team to 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 bother um, and I thought Filipowski seemed like he he had good rebounding position. The fouls bothered me. Um, he had four fouls in only 16 minutes of playing time, did Kyle Filipowski. And two of those fouls, he fouled three-point shooters. Uh, you know, I know that Kyle Filipowski wants to be more on the perimeter. He's not a chain-me-in-the-post kind of big man. But, boy, if you're going to be on the perimeter, if you're that long, you can't be fouling three-point shooters. It's it's a dangerous place to to put your team. And then I, I want to mention about Ryan Young. Um he he struggled with some of the length he was facing, uh, you know, mostly Christian Reeves, but it, it, it looked to me like Ryan Young for a guy as experienced as he is. I was a little surprised at how many shots he missed close in. Um, he, he's definitely looking to shoot boy. When Ryan Young gets the ball in the post, he's going to put his head down. He's going to put a couple moves on you. He's going to bump into you a couple times and try and create that separation so that he can finish. I thought that Ryan young had a lot of bad luck. Uh, it really just a couple inches away from, from maybe making two or three more of those shots. And suddenly rather than talking about Christian Reeves, we'd all be talking about Ryan young here. If, if rather than going two for six, he goes four for six on those shots in the post. It's a whole different story for him. I, I still really like what he's bringing to the table guys. I thought it was really interesting. And I guess wings and guards, we should just do them all together at the same time. What the heck? I thought it was really interesting that Jalen Blakes and Jeremy Roach were on the same team and Tyrese Proctor was on the other team. If you'd asked me in the preseason, hey, who's the point guard and the backup point guard? Point guard, I would say, is Jeremy Roach. The backup point guard is Jalen Blakes. Um, The fact that they put those two guys together on a team and put Tyrese Proctor on the other team says to me that Tyrese Proctor is, is essentially Jeremy Roach's backup. Or it maybe even says that Tyrese Proctor is the starting point guard and Jeremy Roach may be playing more of a of a two guard of a of a of a wing kind of position. In fact, I saw a good a good bit of that with Jalen Blake's. You know, when Roach and Blake's were together, Blake's felt a little more like the point, and Roach was a little more on the wing off the ball. It may be the Duke's looking at something like that. Uh, Sam, what do you think about the you know those three guys who all who all I thought played really really nicely. Let me evoke uh, some some fun pairs of guards from Duke history who notionally were both point guards, Quinn Cook and Tyus Jones. 
played next to each other. And Tyus Jones was the point guard. Quinn Cook had been the point guard for a couple years to that point and then became more of a shooting guard on the 14-15 team. We know how that turned out. In 2010-2011, Nolan Smith was sort of the point guard, but Kyrie Irving was coming in. Obviously, he got hurt. That season didn't turn out the way that we wanted it to, but they seemed to play off each other really well with both of them doing a fair amount of ball handling. We could even go all the way back to 2001 when Jay Williams and and Chris Mm -hmm. Duhon were playing next to each other. Both of those guys were kind of point guards too. So there is certainly a history of Duke being able to pull this off. Look, John Shire playing with Nolan Smith. Nolan was was not really the ball handler that year. John Shire was, was the point guard on that team. He, he brought the ball up most of the time, but Nolan Smith had some of that ability. I'm sure that John Shire is thinking about that because, Jason, I had the same reaction to Proctor playing on the other team. Usually in this blue-white game, we have a team of starters and a team of reserves, and I think what happened here... Well, they, they divide them up to try and make it equal, but no, but you're no, right. but I in, in, in years past, they've usually started the game where it's clear that the first team that, that, that the presumed starters are playing on one team. And then they'll this, this year, they only played 16 minutes in prior years. I think they've played multiple halves. So they've actually like changed the teams up, which they didn't do on Friday. What I think John Shire probably saw is, all right, we're only doing a 16-minute scrimmage. I don't know whose decision that was. It was annoying because I would have liked to see more, but I understand I, they don't want to reveal too much. Well, I think it might have been a decision based on injuries. The fact that, that both Whitehead and Lively were out, there was just no reason to do a, a longer scrimmage. 30 full and, minutes. Yeah. And that's, and that's the other point, right, is that without Lively and without Whitehead, you're missing two of the presumed starters. And so doing starters versus reserves doesn't work as well. You're, you're missing two lottery picks. <laughs> right. So 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 the idea of doing starters and reserves doesn't work as well. So I actually think that Shire was going for more balance between the two teams. And I had the same reaction, Jason. Proctor playing on the other team, uh, bringing the ball up. My assumption at this point, based on what we saw on Friday, is that Roach and Proctor are both going to be playing a lot of minutes. Roach is playing... 30 to 35 minutes. Proctor might be playing nearly that much as well, depending on, you know, if his if his body is ready for it, which I, I think it is. He, he looks like he's in pretty good shape. But presuming that he can hold up this season, they're both playing 30 plus minutes a game. And outside of blowouts, at least one of them is always going to be on the floor because one of them is always going to be the point guard. Jalen Blakes, if we're if we're on that same topic and and, and maybe Donald can come back to Proctor in a second, but I thought on Jalen Blakes that he showed a, a lot of hustle last uh, on Friday, and there's a chance that he he has played himself into a few more minutes this year. I'm not going to commit to that, and maybe this is actually a a good stat game topic is is how many minutes Jalen Blakes could get because I could see it being as low as what he played last year, which is basically only garbage time. But you could see all that hustle and all that you know whatever whatever sort of innate quality it is that that makes scrappy Duke guys extra scrappy and, and earn extra minutes, Tyler Thornton style. I could see Jalen Blake's ending up like that. So uh, maybe that's there, one there's, that we have to battle out. There is a there's a window between part of the regular rotation and only playing garbage time. And and I think that's where Jalen Blake's probably comes in this year. Grayson, Don, Allen's, Don, Grayson Allen's freshman year style. Yeah, I mean, not quite like that because it, maybe that that might be a good that might be a good approximation. Donald, where are you on this? Yeah. So for me, I think 
I wasn't bought into the sense that, hey, we have the starters here and I'm surprised that Proctor was on the other team because honestly, I liked that Proctor was on the other team because and Blake was lined up alongside Roach because throughout the practices, throughout the scrimmages, the raw and cut videos this summer, we have seen, uh, at least since Proctor has been here, we've seen Proctor and Roach playing together to see how that works. There's two things we have not seen uh, at least, and I don't, maybe John Shire wanted to get this look with two things. One, seeing how Blakes does play next to Roach. And two, seeing how Proctor plays with, quote, the second unit. Because there's going to be those gaps where there's going to be guys who are going to need rest. And there's going to be people who need to take breaks. Jeremy Roach is going to be one of them. And probably when that go, when that happens, then Proctor is going to be, the, you know, not the sole ball handler on the floor, but the primary ball handler on the floor. And what John Shire probably wanted to see was, hey, how does he work with this second unit? Because there's going to be times where, I mean, just like you see in the NBA, right? Like you'll see some guys, the the, the stars of the team will leave with about four minutes left in the, fir- in the first quarter, and they don't come back till about six minutes left in the second quarter. That's their like normal break for the entire game. And then you see maybe one starter, kind of leading the second unit and making sure that they are still a cohesive unit. I think Tyrese Proctor might be that guy who can bridge the gap between the first and second teams, if you will, while guys are getting breaks. And it's not to say that he's going to be the only guy that does that, but I think that was probably John Shire's rationale for putting him on that team with the presumed uh, backups, if you will. I think when it comes to Jalen Blakes, I thought he did very well next to Roach because again, Roach is very good, even if he didn't have the most polished game. Roach is very good at taking the pressure off of Jalen Blakes. And I think that's what allowed Jalen Blakes to run all over and do things because he knows he has a Jeremy Roach to back him up if he overextends or he if he goes for a, a loose ball and doesn't get it, right? Like you if you have a guy that's stable enough that you can kind of take those risks and take a couple of challenges, then that I, I think you want to see how that plays out too, to see how Jalen Blakes would play alongside the established veterans. And I think that's really good because you want him to be confident if for some reason Jeremy Roach gets in a foul trouble, Tyrese Proctor gets in a foul trouble, like J- Jacob Grandison gets in a foul trouble. To have a Jalen Blakes who, again, is one of the veterans on the team, if you will, uh, even though he's a sophomore, to come off of the bench and be able to lead a unit if he needed to. Donald brought up Jacob Grandison. Jason, I wanted you to answer this question. What did you think of Jacob Grandison last night or on, on Friday? I think that that there are a lot of ways that you could interpret his performance. So did you think that coming out of that, he is definitely a rotation guy? Is he a sub rotation guy or is he not playing much? Oh, I, I'm I think Jacob Grandison looked like one of the better players in that scrimmage, even though he missed a lot of shots. He was just one of seven oh four on three pointers. He, he grabbed eight rebounds. He played really good defense. I thought the defense, uh, Jacob Grandison's defense was outstanding. He was always in the right place. He was bothering whoever he was guarding, playing good deny man-to-man. I I, I loved what I saw from Jacob Grandison. I thought he was more aggressive by taking the ball to the hole. And, and you know, look, we'd seen in our scrimmage video, in, in the secret scrimmage video that we got, um, Grandison to me mostly stood on the perimeter and didn't seem to be taking the ball aggressively to the basket. 
that that was the opposite of what we saw last night. I, I really I loved what I saw from Jacob Grandison. I'm glad you didn't take the bait on his stats because uh, I I think that he he I agree with you that he felt like uh, he he knew how to do a lot of little things really well, which is what you would expect for someone who has exactly. played at a high level and and perhaps a little in contrast to the way you were describing Ryan Young earlier, where if we're you know if we're ranking the the transfers, Jacob Grandison felt like he was the most uh, up to speed with this team. I, I will just tell you guys that Jacob Grandison wears a headband, and those who know me who play basketball know that in basketball, at soccer, and in life, I wear a headband uh, most times. So uh, he can do no wrong for me uh, because he is part of the headband gang. Uh, that is something that Duke has not had in a very, very, very long time, and I'm very glad to see it come back into style with the Duke basketball team through Jacob Grandison. Uh, by the way, in addition to Grandison playing good defense, I, th- I thought Kale Catchings looked like he was playing very good defense as well. But both of those guys were disruptive on defense with their ability to deny in the man-to-man. And I thought that was that was really interesting to talk about. Uh, guys, I-, I feel like there are maybe two other significant players we haven't mentioned that much about. One is, uh, is Mark Mitchell, who uh, we, we've been getting some stuff that Mitchell was you know, been, has been one of the more impressive players in practice lately. So I I had high expectations for what I would see from him in this scrimmage. He wasn't bad. I mean, you can tell the dude is long. Uh, you, he has, he has pretty good handle. I was impressed with his handle and, and some nice passing. He had a great pass to Ryan young at one point, very, very early in the scrimmage. Um, certainly athletic showed his athleticism, especially on some rebounds, but didn't do a lot else. I, I sort of expected maybe a little bit more from him. He was one of many guys who struggled from the field. I mean, Duke did not did not shoot well at all in in this thing. Neither team did, especially the white team, which is uh, Mitchell's team. They, they only hit thirty two percent of their shots, which is just not an impressive percentage. And Mitchell was one of six. Uh, and then the other person I wanted to mention is Jaden Shoot, who also was one of six. Um, uh, missed all three of his three pointers. I. I I don't think that's going to be something that's going to happen to him often. Uh, he has such a great reputation as a great shooter, but uh, what, what is uh, Jaden shoot needs to learn that he can't just take the ball to the hole because uh, he got his, he just got destroyed by Stanley Borden twice. Donald, what's your takeaway on, on Mr. Shoot and Mr. Mitchell? Yeah. I, I'm not too concerned about either of them for this reason, right? Uh, they are playing the defense that knows them the best, right? They're playing their own team and their own team knows how to stop those guys. But also when they're all in the same court together, the other team has can't really focus in on Jade shoot because then there's a Mark Mitchell that could destroy them. They can't focus in on a Mark Mitchell because there's a Tyrese Proctor that could destroy them. They can't focus in on Ty- Tyrese Proctor because there's, you know, eventually going to be a Derek Whitehead and Derek Lively to destroy them. So, I think because of that, all of these guys on the floor at some point are going to make it where the offense is going to be way, way more open and these guys are going to be able to take the shots that they need to and make them. I think this, again, why we don't read too much into the scrimmage is because they're playing the, the defense that knows them the best. They're playing the offense that knows them the best. These guys are going to know how to shut down Jaden shoot. And it's not it's, it's I'm not, you know, really upset or or disappointed or concerned about their progress from 15 minutes of playing basketball in a scrimmage, which of, of course we all love, but it's something where, you know, again, the lights, the camera, the glitz, the glamour, 
it jacks up everything a little bit. And because of that, guys play a little sloppy. It happens all the time. You want to know the reason that I'm not that concerned about shooting Mitchell is that it took us all this time and mentioning all these other players to get to them. So if both exactly. of them are not playing very many minutes early in the season or even most of the season, that's part of what John Shire was recruiting for this year was probably on average a little bit more depth than we've seen the last few years from other Duke teams. So, uh, you know, if it if it takes Mark Mitchell a little bit of time to find his shot, if it takes Jaden shoot time to find his shot and he's only playing five minutes a game before we get to ACC play or even through most of the year, you know, it happens. And, and not every guy is able to progress this quickly. We hope that Lively and Whitehead are able to get healthy soon because if they don't, then I'm much more concerned about the the scoring on this team. But in the meantime, you know, in, in aggregate, I think they're going to be fine. Yeah, and, and as we've said repeatedly, one 16-minute scrimmage, one 16-minute scrimmage where, where two key players are not playing. The, the, uh, anyone who does too many hot takes coming out of this is going to uh, be eating their words. Um, there, there's just a, a lot more that we need to see to know about these guys. And uh, by the way, we, I, I feel awful. We just haven't, we, we haven't talked enough about how good Tyrese Proctor looked in this scrimmage. Uh, he had one, the, the shake and bake move he put on Kyle Filipowski was that led to a layup was ridiculous. And he was for several stretches, the best player on the floor um, for a, for a freshman who did not play with Duke all summer, man, that, Sky is the limit for that kid. It was it was really great. All right, guys, uh, I, I think we've discussed all the players enough. Um, hey, Kale Catchings, by the way, nice job, buddy. Uh, so now we've discussed all the players enough. <laughs> Let's get to the silly stuff, the introductions. Um, uh, can I ask, guys, what did you all think of that ramp in the middle of the floor? It it feels to me like maybe it hindered their ability to dance and terrifying. Themselves. It was terrifying. Why did they have that? <laughs> that was only inviting injury. I was exactly. I saw it and I was like. Oh man, are they going to walk up that? Someone's going to fall and get hurt, and this is going to be the story of Duke's season. I, I wasn't worried about that. It just, but like you said, it hindered the dancing that could possibly happen because it wasn't a it wasn't a, a wide ramp, you know, it wasn't a wide like platform, right? So they didn't have a lot of room to do a lot of things. But maybe that was by design. Like again, give a little, but not everything. Um, don't you know? Don't do a break dancing move and and mess up your hip or something. I don't know what it was, but yeah, I, it clearly hindered some of the stuff that they wanted to do. Donald, you're the master of this stuff. I want to hear from you. Who do you think had the best dance moves? Okay, so I'm going to not answer that question yet. What I'm going to do is tell you, because uh, you know I, I listed some of the, the hot ones that I thought were cool. I am starting with Stanley Borden, because you oh, yeah. have to start with Stanley oh, Borden. Amazing. <laughs> I I played the alto sax, and that man did very, very well for himself with Careless Whisper on the alto sax. Perfect, perfect. That is That was obviously the best one, okay? Um, I, I like some of the other guys, like, you know, Tyrese Proctor you know, did the shoot. He to, I, th I thought he did that very well. My, or Mark Mitchell did the gritty, which uh, you guys have seen in college football. He brought that to Cameron. I thought he did fairly well with that. Um, Christian Reeves coming out with the Jason mask. Like that was pretty cool. I like that. That was a a very simple, subtle thing uh, to Future's mask off. He takes the mask off. Everyone goes wild. That's awesome. I think the most appropriate of the, you know, intros was Jaden shoots. He came out to it. shots. 
Yeah, he came out the shots, and, and that's very appropriate because that's what we expect him Everybody. to do quite a bit this year. Yeah, <laughs> so that was really cool. Um, and again, shout out to Jacob Grandison. He had the headband uh, rocking. Uh, I appreciate, I for one appreciate that. But yeah, I, I think they all did fairly well with their intros. And again, I, I liked all the music. There's, I mean, maybe like one song that I didn't fully recognize immediately. Uh, but I think when it comes to this, they didn't have a lot of opportunity to do some of the dance moves or like, you know, Chase Jeter flipping the, the water bottle, something like that, I, which is where I think uh, Stanley Borden made the most of his time and you know the 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 platform so to speak uh to use that as his stage for the alto sax i thought that was pretty cool and also something that we haven't seen someone bringing on a musical instrument showing the versatility uh of some of these players and, and what they like to do in their free time and meanwhile ryan young holding it down for old white people yeah <laughs> and he and he just showed up he he was he walked up I thought he was about to do some sort of dance. No, he just put his hand in the air and he nope. just walked off. Nope. <laughs> He's I, like, I'm done. I haven't uh, I haven't been to shooters since since Ryan Young has enrolled at Duke, but I can imagine exactly where Ryan Young stands at shooters when he's there. No, uh, <laughs> yeah. there's a there's a corner upstairs for all uh-huh. the Ryan Youngs of the world. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And they just look over the balcony and just they observe just watch everyone else dance. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, uh, my my word on it was uh, obviously. I mean, Stanley Borden, amazing. Um, I love Tyrese Proctor coming out with the shades, and he had some dance moves that I thought looked good. I thought Derek Lively, Derek Lively showed that he can definitely dance. Uh, it was important to me to note that Derek Whitehead was not wearing a boot, had had you know had been was moving a little bit. You know, he took he took Jeremy Roach and Jacob Grandison up there with him. I'm not quite sure why or what was going on there, but they were having some fun, and it 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 showed me that Whitehead is progressing really nicely in his recovery from injury. Also, also, Jason, uh, a, a very keynote, we talked about the ramps, right? Like how how scary they were for or terrifying they were uh, in, the, in the words of Sam. But for the fact that he was able to move up and down a ramp, a lot of people may take that for granted. But if you are if you have a lower leg injury and you are hurt, like that is a big deal to be able to move up a ramp and down a ramp without, you know, you know, further injury or further aggravating it. So I'm glad that he was able to do that because that shows how maybe he's a little bit further along uh, than we all thought he was. Yeah, and there was no limping or no nothing. And then in terms of the dancing, I thought that Jalen Blakes and Max Johns both look like the best dancers to me. Obviously, this is a hugely important thing. We should probably put up a poll or something like that to determine who the best dancer was. But in my opinion, Jalen Blakes and Max Johns both both look like they have real legit dance moves. And I, I'm just going to harp on the old guys still, but John Shire uh, still can move pretty well. So that's uh, yeah, that that's good to see. And, and to the point of the ramp, the other problem with that setup was that they had the whole team go up there at some point, and I don't know how exactly they decided the length of that thing, but it did not fit the entire team. Yeah, so it was a couple not, of them no. were sort of <laughs> falling off the edge. I I did not like that. The, the whole thing, the whole dancing thing, actually gave me anxiety because of how small the stage was that they had them go up. Uh, I understand that it looked cool, you know, to have you know they had logos on the side they had the lights on the side and everything but uh man they could have just made it like bigger right so one thing i want to uh, note uh, i know we were talking about the men's side of things but on the last episode we had kind of a discrepancy about when the actual countdown was supposed to start like online it's at seven o'clock espn said eight o'clock well we found out on friday why it was starting uh at seven o'clock and it was because before the men came out to do countdown 
the women's basketball team also came out, which I thought was really cool that they were able to kind of take in this whole glitz and glamour and be a part of the countdown and make it where it's about both basketball programs and not just uh, the men's program. So I thought that was really cool that they did that. I, it would have been nice for ESPN to show that as well. Maybe they have recorded it or somewhere for, for people to watch. Uh, but I think that was really cool that they were able to uh, include the women's team in there. Cause they're, I mean, they're destined to have some, a pretty solid season. And we're looking forward to seeing how high they can go. They're going to be playing some pretty tough opponents uh, like UConn, but I do think that, you know, Carol Lawson has that group ready to go. And I think it was cool that they were also able to introduce themselves and endear themselves to the Cameron crazies, because it's important for those Cameron crazies to know that the men's basketball team. Yes. 9,314 are always in Cameron for those games, but 9,314 should also be there for the women as well. Amen, brother. And let's not forget, Kara Lawson is far and away the most experienced basketball head coach at Duke right now. (laughs) By a lot. (laughs) All right, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, the Blue Devils thump the Miami Hurricanes and another one. Recruiting news after this quick commercial break. All right, we're back from the break, and oh boy, the Duke Blue Devils had an important game against the Miami Hurricanes in football on Saturday. Duke came into the game a 10-point underdog. They leave Miami. They leave South Beach, a 45-21 to winner. Absolutely thumped the Hurricanes. Eight turnovers. I mean, just unbelievable the way the Duke defense dominated this football game against a Miami team that, you know, was ranked in the preseason. I mean, at the beginning of the year, if you'd looked at Duke's schedule and you'd said, okay, there are, there's one or two games on here that just, even if Duke's playing well, they have no chance to win. Miami would have been one of them. Uh, uh-uh, uh, that was not the case. Not at all. Um, uh, Donald, I'll come to you first because you're someone who pays a lot of attention to Miami athletics what do you think of what you saw from the Blue Devils on Saturday? It was exactly what I expected would happen or could happen because Miami has. Wait, done wait this you expected year. eight turnovers? <laughs> I didn't expect eight turnovers. Nobody did. That's the first time Duke has ever done that. Um, so that I mean, hats off to the defense. Also, the defense allowed a season low forty-eight rushing yards, which again, Miami has had some problems with the passing game, so they have deviated in recent weeks to the running game, and they have been doing fairly well with that. So to hold them to forty-eight yards is a very tremendous accomplishment by Duke's defense. But for Miami's side, Miami likes to play down to their opponents. And they have. it's not like you're going to Hard Rock Stadium and it's a fortress like the Orange Bowl used to be, right? Like, they lost to Middle Tennessee State badly at home earlier this year. They've had, I mean, they lost to A&M, and they probably shouldn't have. There was a couple of bad calls there. But they've had some bad losses this year where they didn't look good doing it. And I think yesterday was one of those games where it felt like, at least from the Miami side, that Miami quit on uh, on the game. But I think for Duke, what they did is absolutely tremendous. Everyone was talking about how they didn't stand a chance down in South Florida, how they were going to get rocked, and how Miami was going to use this as kind of a springboard for the rest of the season. And Duke took it personally. And I think that's what they should have done. They walked in there with a mission to be competitive and keep their minds focused on the, on the W. And even when Miami came back and took that, I think it was a 21 to 17 lead. They didn't waver from that. 
And if you think about it, Miami did not score or come close to scoring the rest of the football game after that point. And that was in the second quarter. The, the second half was all Duke and Duke took advantage of every single opportunity um, that Miami had. And Miami just didn't have an answer for it. And at a certain point, they all just quit. And I know they lost Tyler Van Dyke uh, to an injury and Garcia came in and he wasn't quite ready for prime time. But Duke takes advantage of the opportunity that were given to him. And when they had a chance to run, basically end the game, the defense stepped up and did that. And so I was really proud of the effort. Partic- I mean, Riley Leonard, we'll talk about him. Riley Leonard did great. But I think the defensive effort is one that people need to really, you know, be, you know, celebrate because you don't get eight turnovers very often. And like I said, it's the first time Duke's ever done that. But to have that kind of defensive output to shut out a team uh, basically in the second, essentially in the second half, shutting them out and making sure that they get run off the field in their own home stadium. That's a tremendous accomplishment and it's one to be proud of. Donald, I'm glad you mentioned that uh, Tyler Van Dyke went down in the middle of this game. He's, of course, Miami's pretty well celebrated quarterback. And Garcia, for his part, uh, threw a few picks that Duke was able, you know, Duke was was able to capitalize on that. But Garcia was really airing it out a lot. So uh, Duke also got burned a couple times in the second half, uh, especially early when when Miami was able to mount that very quick comeback that that Duke was ultimately able to overcome. I wanted to actually key in on that moment of the game because we've talked in recent weeks in Duke's losses to UNC and to Georgia Tech about how Duke managed to keep fighting to the end of these games and that one of the differences that we can tell from last year is that Duke isn't giving up in second halves when they get down. Uh, This was a perfect example of like Duke went into halftime of this game up 17 to 7, which was really cool, but also felt very shaky because a lot of it was built on turnovers that didn't seem replicable now i didn't realize duke was going to turn miami over eight times throughout this game so that's you know besides the point and and in some way that those turnovers are especially the the fumbles are a little random although you could tell that duke was was going for those those punch outs but i thought going into halftime it's great that duke is up miami had more yardage duke had basically only been able to score because they had such awesome field position from multiple Miami turnovers that they turned into points. So Miami could cut those turnovers off and mount a comeback very quickly, which they did. Duke didn't let up from that. And, and they made adjustments on offense. Um, the offense was, was clicking a little bit better in the second half. I know that Duke scored three offensive touchdowns and they scored three times on offense in the first half, two touchdowns and a field goal, but those were basically all defensive scores. I mean, Duke was able to, to, to get the ball in Miami territory every time on the, on the back of turnover. So not super replicable and Riley Leonard, Donald, you mentioned having a, a great game. I thought what was most impressive about Leonard's performance was, you know, he wasn't like a great passer yesterday. Um, you know, he only completed about half of the, of the passes that he attempted and, and, and wasn't slinging it downfield or anything, but man, was he tough running, uh, running option plays, figuring out which guys to give it to, and then also keeping it himself. There was a, a touchdown in this game where he ran it in from nine yards where he his just, second touchdown. That was amazing. He, he just decided was he awesome. was like, he was like, yep, I'm I'm getting in there. No one's stopping me. He's like, he's like airborne to to reach the ball out to get it over the goal line. I mean, that was the that of of all the running quarterbacks that Duke has had in recent years, Daniel Jones was one of those two. 
um, could, could, you know, take the ball himself, just, just up the gut, man, Riley Leonard looked awesome doing that uh, yesterday. So I wanted to focus on two really key moments in the game because even though this game was a blowout, there are a lot of ways this game goes differently. Uh, in, in my opinion, the first was and huge hat tip to the defense in the first quarter, Miami had a seven, nothing lead. And I think the game changed on a, on a chain link. And by that, I mean, on Miami's second drive, it looked like they were marching to a 14 to nothing lead on Duke. They were, they were well into Duke territory. They had a fourth and one where Duke stopped them. And the guy was bottled up in a huge pile of players. I frankly don't know how the officials figure out, okay, here's how far he got. And he didn't get another inch further. But when they placed the football and then measured it, Duke had stopped them. Duke had held them on fourth down by one chain link. I think that was very much a a little bit of a turning point in the game. It could have easily been a first down as easily as it was a failed conversion. And if Miami had converted that, I don't know that the rest of the game goes the way it did. I think it it could have gone very, very differently because that first quarter was kind of a disaster for Duke. Miami was dominating the ball, and and until Miami fumbled with less than 10 seconds left in that first quarter, they looked like far and away the better team. The other moment I wanted to mention, and Sam, you alluded to this, the first two minutes of the second half are, are terrible for Duke. Miami gets a long bomb. They score. Duke immediately commits a turnover. Miami puts 14 points on the board in a heartbeat. It went from 17 to 7, Duke leading to Miami 21-17. I'm going to be honest. If you ask me at that moment, is Duke going to win this game? I've been like, nope. I, I, I feel terrible. I had lost faith. But then they go on an 18-play drive. An 18-play drive that included converting a third and 13. It converted. They converted a, 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 a two fourth downs, including a fourth and nine, and then um, where they had a, a, that shovel pass. Um, uh, sorry, the shovel pass was on fourth and goal, where they scored a, a touchdown off of it to take the lead again. That's that's a game-changing drive. That drive. I, uh, again, you've given up two touchdowns in, in a minute and a half. You've given up the lead. And for you to march the length of the field the way they did, converting third downs and fourth downs again and again to get a touchdown to retake the lead, it it cannot be understated. That may have been one of the most important drives we've seen from a Duke football team in recent years. Donald, anything else in the football game? Yeah, Jason, you you mentioned that when, you know, again, and I misspoke when I said that they were shut out in the second half, but for all intents and purposes, minus that, two minutes or two and a half minutes to start the second half, you know, Duke defense put up a goose egg, but when that happened, right. You said that it was over. You said that you you thought that they weren't going to come back from that. And you were well conditioned and right to believe that because most Duke fans believe that because that's the history that we have as Duke football fans is that we may have a slight lead and we hold on. And then all of a sudden the other team takes the lead and the floodgates open, and then it's just, you know, everything seems to go from bad to worse. And so a lot of people were expecting that. A lot of people, when that when that happened early in the second half, they take 21-17 lead, there's a lot of people who are just like, oh, well, we had a good run, but, you know, Miami's going to pull away from here. And it was Duke that pulled away. It was Duke that, again, went on that 18-play drive. And then from there, they're like, okay, let's shut, the, let's shut down this team in their own house. And that's kind of the flip that we've seen at certain points this season from Duke football. Like I, I, and I like seeing it and we want to see more of it so that next time, again, next time, Jason, 
when we do have a lead and we lose it, then maybe, just maybe, the Duke fan base goes, hey, this team's not going to quit. This team's not going to give up. Why should we? And, and, and that's where I think, you know, this Elko team in his first season as head coach, Mike Elko and his bunch are turning, a, changing a lot of minds about how Duke football operates, that we are going to be a team that does not quit, even if we get down um, in the second half late or even early. I think that's a really good thing. It might be the most important thing that this Duke football team is teaching us this season. Is it inappropriate for me to start looking at the ACC bowl tie-ins? For I literally was just going to mention this. So Duke now has five wins. Mm-hmm. Here are our four remaining regular season games. Boston College, Virginia Tech, Pitt, and Wake. I want to point out, Duke, by the way, is now 55th, number 55 in the Sagarin rankings. We are higher ranked than three of our four remaining opponents. We are 55. Boston College is 106th. Virginia Tech is 100. Pitt is 59. Wake is number 15. Wake is going to be – Wake's really good. (laughs) But um, Duke, it, it is not at all unlikely that this Duke team finishes with seven victories. Um, I mean, hell, maybe even maybe even eight. I don't know. Is eight crazy? All right, Jason, I'm let's crazy. Let's, 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 let's start with six. Six would be great. <laughs> let's let let's say that the goal has been six the whole time. Well, the next two weeks, ESPN says against Boston College, Duke has a seventy-one percent chance to win. That BC team, by the way, gives up almost one hundred and fifty yards rushing per game. Duke is a really good rushing team, and Virginia Tech. ESPN says Duke has an 81% chance to win. I mean, look, anything could happen. When but... have you heard that before? Right? Like, <laughs> it, like that is, right. that is a stat that you have like never heard. Even when back in 2013, when we were just, you know, blitzing people on the way to the uh, ACC title game, every, it felt like every single game we went into, like until like the last couple of games of the season, we were still underdogs and Virginia tech was one of them. The Virginia tech game that year, People are like, oh, well, this is where the train ends. Duke, Duke had a nice run. Good for them. But Virginia Tech's going to take care of business. And we beat them, and everyone goes, oh, my God. that That's not that's not something we thought was going to happen. I have never heard someone say Virginia Tech has an 81% chance to lose against Duke University in the sport of football. And, guys, I did not realize that this Duke-Boston College game that's coming up in Chestnut Hill in a couple weeks is going to be such a big deal for the program. So now I guess I have to go. <laughs> Yep. Yes, you do. Represent us. All right, guys, we got one more thing we got to cover here on the DBR podcast. Uh, as I've said a couple times, another one. Duke lands another recruit. It is our first recruit of the class of 2024. This happened on Saturday. Darren Harris, who is a four-star, 6'5", 6'6", wing player. Um, he's like a top 40, top 50 kind of recruit. Not, you know, not someone that you go, oh, this is someone who's going to be one and done. Uh, instead, Darren Harris projects as you know a multi-year player probably at Duke. He is not an explosive athlete. He's not someone with crazy quickness. But what he does possess in spades is shooting. He's considered by many to be not just the best outside shooter in the class of 2024. He is in the running for the best shooter in all of high school right now. He has a really quick release, absolutely unlimited range. If you watch the videotape on this guy, You'll see he's not someone who hangs out with his toes on the three-point line firing away. He he hits it as comfortably from 25, 27 feet as he does from 21. Um, he is also known as a very smart player and a clever passer, a guy who uses his body well. 
Um, it is worth noting that he goes to Paul VI in the Washington, D.C. area, which is TBI. the same school Jeremy Roach goes to, same school Trevor Keels went to. Apparently, whenever Paul VI has a really great guard, he belongs to Duke. <laughs> um, and I think it's sort of interesting. There's some nice overlap, I think, here with Jaden Shute, um, who, who you know, sort of seems like a similar kind of player. If you assume that Harris and Shute are probably four-year players, Shute will be a junior when Harris arrives. And you can sort of see a pattern here of, you know, hey, spend a couple of years getting stronger, figuring things out, playing a smaller role, and then elevate yourself into a larger role as you become an upperclassman. And that John Shire, who clearly loves to get shooters, could, you know, it makes a lot of sense that he's doing this with Jaden Shute and then with with uh, Darren Harris. Although it's worth noting, it appears that John Shire just loves to have shooters, period, end of the story. If you look at what he's recruited, I mean, there's Jaden Shute, there's Tyrese Proctor. Next year, there's Jared McCain, Caleb Foster, uh, Power, Harris. I mean, these guys are all considered among the best shooters in their class. These are all guys who fire away from deep, and it's clear that that is something that John Shire really wants from his recruiting. But welcome, Darren Harris, to Duke. Sam. I note in the Devil's Den article about Harris's commitment that he talked to Coach K during the recruitment process. And look, that was part and parcel of the program last year. Coach K is still in the building, but uh, I could see that that John Shire has committed to uh, keeping Coach K around in the capacity of, hey, let's just make sure we we trot him out for for the purposes of securing commitments. Interesting here that the first guy to commit to Duke in this class is not a, you know, top, top prospect. He's a he's a consensus four star now. Plenty of time, of course, he has two more full high school seasons to to change that ranking. But that Duke's first commitment is not coming from a surefire one and done type player, as you said, Jason, more of a four year looking type player. So I do wonder if if John Shire is thinking about, you know, and maybe this is just this is the guy who happened to to commit first, and there are other guys who might be coming soon after. But you wonder yeah, by, if John by, the, Shire, by the way, yeah, really quickly, um, Dylan Harper, who's considered like top five in the class, he's a combo guard. Um, uh, he was he was in attendance at Countdown to Craziness. He was taking his official Duke visit. He saw Countdown, and and there are a lot of folks who think that he may be you know sort of one of the major guys that Duke is targeting in that class of twenty twenty four. So interesting that this is the first one, but yet not not that not that John Shire is only recruiting uh, four star guys anymore, but that that this is sort of the the first building block in that class. Sounds like I need to get a press pass to see some PVI games again this year because uh, that pipeline is is proven to be quite fruitful. Uh, Donald, I, I, I think this. you can just go. I, I, I could just go too. I could just do that. Um, it's Fairfax though, so I need a reason that they they do have a cookout out there now. So. Um, I can I can make that double double dip. They have cookout in Fairfax. They just got it. Yeah, I know. We're, I, we'll, we'll talk about that. We'll talk about that in our in our outtakes. But yes, there is a cookout there. I will say this about uh, about Harris is yeah, Jason. You mentioned the the shooting right, and I think the thing that translates the best to the next level, the collegiate level, is how quick he gets a shot off. It's not a shot like if you remember we talked about Matthew Hurt and how he was an elite shooter, but he would have to work on. Uh, quickening his release. This is not the case with Harris. He he's going to be able to get a shot off against any 
uh, opponent. It's just a matter of the accuracy, which he's been super accurate so far. But I think what excites me uh, just as much is his passing. Um, he is a great passer, and he's able to you know find guys. And because of the fact that he can stretch the floor, it also creates better passing lanes for people to do backdoor cuts or even just find open men on the other side of the floor. So if you have guys that can shoot, can handle the ball and can pass, you have yourself a really good basketball team. And so I'm really looking forward to seeing also, you know, the fact that he's committing, like you said, Sam, before the start of his junior season of basketball, he's able to uh, use this to even improve his game over the next couple of years in the way that he needs to, in order to, succeed here at duke so i i'm really looking forward to seeing that progression over the next couple of years all right guys i think that's going to wrap it up for us here on the latest edition of the dbr podcast episode 451 we had a lot of basketball news we had some football news it just keeps on coming it is getting into the exciting time of year and we will be back very very soon with the next episode for sam and donald i am jason all done with episode 451 here's the duke band Play us out and take us home. So, yes, gentlemen, there is a a cookout. We've been waiting for this cookout for like a year now. Um, but it sounds like it is finally open. Now, wait, uh, are there effects. are there no cookouts in the DC area? No, no. Cookouts. We barely have a. We barely had Bojangles. Like the Bojangles that was at Union Station, Sam. You know, the little tiny one that basically everyone served yeah. as a de facto Bojangles. That's long gone. Um, so the only Bojangles are in PG County as of right I, now. I've, I think there's a couple in in um in uh, Virginia, North Virginia. But yeah, I've had this conversation with with a couple people recently that growing up in Montgomery County, I if you ask me like when I was a kid, like when I'm like 15 years old, what part of the, like what region of the country are you from? I said I'm from the Northeast. Uh, it, it's not like there was very little Southern about about. Where, and then well, like when I went to Duke, it felt like it was a completely different world, uh, like the food that was available, like all kinds of stuff. So. It, um so it, like it, this is one of those like oh my god dc's in the south now uh because yeah so this cookout the the thing about it though is like we get all the commercials for all the southern food that we don't have like we'll have sonic well, if commercials. you're watching if you're watching the acc yeah well no i'm just talking in general like there you can watch a washington football team game and there'll be a local commercial about sonic because sonic is in northern virginia but for someone in DC, that is that is a very big deal, right? Like, okay, so the Sonic, the closest Wait, y'all don't Sonic, have Sonic either. No, the closest Sonic is in Fredericksburg. What? Yeah, Fredericksburg is a good hour and a half away. There's there there is also traffic. there was there was Sonic like on the Eastern Shore. Um, I don't right. know if it's still but there. That's three but like, hours. That, away. That's also not that's also not close by. <laughs> and for a yeah. long time, you all you all didn't have like Krispy Kreme and Chick Fil A, right? Uh, Correct. I rem- we had we had Chick Fil A when I was a kid because they had it at the mall. Um, but I remember it being like exotic. But How no, you- like stand. No, no. But like Sam, we didn't have uh, until recently. They didn't have standalone 
brick and mortar restaurants. Yeah, like, yeah. Yes, Chick Fil A was in, a Chick Fil A was in the mall. It wasn't like they were in food courts. Yeah, that was yeah. it. And and now they now we have brick and mortars. There's actually one down the street the, here. The chicken place, the chicken place in the D.C. area when I was growing up, uh, which still exists in a few places, is called Roy Rogers. Uh, it's mm-hmm. named after oh, the... Roy Rogers is terrible. No, Roy Rogers is great. No, uh, I've eaten. You're them. wrong. Uh-huh. Roy Rogers is great, but you can only I think you can only now find it like on the New Jersey Turnpike and like deep in Appalachia, but only in the like uh, the Pennsylvania Turnpike, too. Oh, in the Pennsylvania. Yeah, exactly. I, like the Appalachian uh, mm-hmm. corridor of like and they used Virginia. to have it at the Delaware House. Roy Rogers was everywhere. And now now it's all gone from from D.C. Now there's like Chick-fil-A and Popeye's everywhere. I, I can't imagine you people who had to grow up without Chick-fil-A, without Krispy Kreme, without good barbecue. I, I will never raise my children any place but the South because they must have those foods to eat. Look, so so I mean, I grew up in Michigan where we have just about everything. And oh. I lived in Texas, which does have everything. And Texas didn't have Chick-fil-A's, you know, back then. Check, uh, I mean, they now they have everything, right? They had Whataburger, they have In-N-Out, they have Sonic, they have Chick-fil-A. Um, I need to they don't have I, cookout yet. I need like, to take I need to take umbrage with one of Jason's comments, which is that uh, I didn't grow up with Krispy Kreme, but I did grow up with the fractured prune donut shop, um, which is oh if yeah, you haven't had it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Donald, I assume Donald has had fractured prune. Yes, um, that was that was elite. Well, wait, wait. Sam knows. Sam knows when I'm traveling someplace, I look for good donut shops. When Sam and I were driving to yeah, New Orleans we we yeah, for the Final Four, we went out of our way to find it. And it was really good. Um, <laughs> it's funny. I had fractured prune for the first time um, just a couple months ago. Really? Um, because I grabbed one in um, in Ocean City like when I was yeah, walking to the, get a lottery. Ocean ticket. City is the, is the, uh, is the original. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I was by the original. But, um, but yeah, in Michigan, we had a bunch of stuff. But like you know, I would always get the Southern food because I would go visit my grandparents in Arkansas and Alabama. Um, but even then, like we were in rural towns, there was no Chick-fil-A in Jasper, Alabama. Let me tell not, you, like, not yet. You'd be lucky to have a McDonald's in Jasper, Alabama. Like not yet. Th- now they have like cat and D's. That is the Southernish thing on the planet to me because only place cat and D's was in, <laughs> was in rural Southern towns. You don't even see those in Atlanta anymore. Oh no, no. The- not anymore. We, ha- we had them. They were they were there for a while. Not anymore. You're right. No, but- no, but saying, like anymore. But like now, the only time you see Cat and D's or Long John Silvers, like the like Long Johns was in the north, Cat and D's was in the south. Um, Hardee's that was a very southern thing. We didn't have that. Checkers was a southern thing because in the north it was called rallies. What? Like what? Yeah. Wait, we had a Ke- I no, no, we had Hardee's. Hardee's no, no, is so everywhere in, in, in Michigan. In Michigan, we didn't have any Hardee's. Also in Michigan. There are no waffle houses, which is a just criminal. There thing. were no, yeah, um, there were no waffle houses where I grew up either. Oh, th- this yeah. is just wrong. This is okay. yeah. All right. If you haven't looked at the map of waffle, the the waffle house map is fascinating because it's so densely populated, like in SEC states. Yeah, does not to exist end this elsewhere. to end this conversation because we're on waffle house. I, can I tell you a quick story? DC back in like 2007 or eight was slated to get a waffle house. It was going to be. On U Street, right next to Ben's Chili Bowl, it was going to be three stories tall, and it was going to be the biggest Waffle House in the country. And it was going to be set up. The owner who was putting in on us, the celebrity face of it, was Fred Smoot. Right when that (laughs) happened, the Minnesota boat scandal happened. 
and that Waffle House went away because Fred Smoot could no longer be the Fred celebrity Smoot. face of it. Fred Smoot's like and one so of those. the Minnesota boat scandal is the reason why there is no Waffle House in the District of Columbia. I thought you were going to say that it's because the union finally prevailed uh, and and pushed back. Oh, probably that too. <laughs> Fred Smoot have, have, you guys, have you guys ever tried to do the $20 challenge at Waffle House? Do you, you know what? You don't know what the twenty dollars yeah. challenge. Do you know what the twenty dollars? No, the twenty dollar. I don't know. I know the twenty four hour thing, but what's the no, no, no. The Waffle House twenty dollar challenge is you have to sit down and order twenty dollars worth of food. <laughs> yeah, not and you're not I've allowed to just eat all bacon. Times. Not not allowed to just eat all bacon. Twenty dollars worth of food and consume it all, and not. You what's know, the, not Jason, head to the bathroom, Jason? I, Jason, I went to college. Like, of course, I'd done the twenty dollars challenge. Well, I was going to say that's in, an in, easy challenge in today's in today's environment. It's probably like the thirty five dollars challenge. Right, exactly. Yeah, oh. When yeah. when I recall it being a thing, yeah, like you could get a, a whole waffle for like a buck and a quarter. Yeah, remember also, the yeah, but also like the the challenge was like it was because first of all, for Waffle House, there's only one thing on the menu that everyone knows. It's the all star special. That's the only thing you need to worry about. Like, yes, they. But back then, they had steaks. Now they don't really serve steak anymore. They right, used to be right. the world's leader of steaks. So that was how you could get to 20 bucks very easily. You order the all-star special with the steak and eggs and you're at like $17.99. And all you had to do was add like a side of bacon or an extra waffle or something like that. Or 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 get the hash browns with some, you know, scattered or covered chunks like and the, just add uh, toppings to it. I like the 24-hour challenge more. It's 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 more evil. Oh, that is that, uh, that one is brutal. It's That's horrible. brutal. All uh, right, we gotta run. Yeah, I got to go. I'm hungry. <laughs>